Welcome to the Source of the Nile, a podcast about media, science and water diplomacy in the Nile Basin. Today we will talk to Rawia Taufik from Cairo University and to Aya Aman, journalist at Al Shuruk newspaper, about media, science and night politics in Egypt. I'm your host, Emanuele Fantini from Aichi Delft, the Institute for Water Education in the Netherlands. Our podcast explores the role of media and scientific communication in Nile hydropolitics. And today, February 22, is Nile Day, a day to commemorate and celebrate the establishment of the Nile Basin Initiative, the intergovernmental partnership between the 11 riparian states, where at day 10, 11, sometimes it's difficult to count them. It depends if you include also Eritrea, that is just an observer, and Egypt, that has frozen its participation to the NBI since the adoption of the Comprehensive Framework Agreement. So the question is, do we have to celebrate and what? As usual, let's begin by listening to our Voices of the Nile. My name is Tasfai uh, from ETP. I'm doing my PhD uh, in the Nile Basin. Uh, I think we should celebrate the Nile Day just to to strengthen the organization in order to help to bring all the parent countries in one flat uh, platform, I think. Yeah, my name is Biar. I come from South Sudan. And I I am enjoying today that uh, the Nile have to be celebrated this year because South Sudan being a pastoralist community and the Nile passing by through these communities has reduced the conflict among communities in competing for water for animals. Hello, my name is Javier. I'm from Egypt. I'm going to Addis Ababa to celebrate the Nile Day next Thursday. And I will celebrate how they we marching together from one spot to another spot for the Nile. My name is Frederick Mujira. I am a journalist uh, based in Uganda. On such a day, I celebrate a river that I have been writing about so uh, writing about for so many years. I celebrate a river that has given water to so many of my communities so it's a it's, it's a great river that has uh, sustained my parents and my grandparents i celebrate it because it is a a source of uh, livelihood you may remember in the last episode we have seen how the media are instrumental in framing the construction of the GERD as a symbol of unity and development for Ethiopia. But last week there were two breaking news in Ethiopia. First, the release of several political prisoners and journalists that were in jail. And I think this is something we should definitely celebrate. And the second big news is the resignation of Ethiopian Prime Minister Ailemariam Desalegne 
as a culmination of more than two years of popular protest. So it looks like the dam is not enough to unite the country. And I have on the phone one person, Micha Gosaid from Addis Abeba. He was our guest in the last episode. So, Wonde, how's the situation in Addis and how do you think the political turbulence in Ethiopia will impact on the negotiation over the dam? Yes, there are difficult situations in, in Addis currently and throughout the country. Uh, hopefully, uh, the government, the opposition and other groups uh, will try to bridge their differences and come up with a peaceful resolution. Uh, as far as uh, the Nile and the Grand Renaissance Dam uh, uh, are concerned, uh, I don't think so. There will be uh, any uh, impact uh, both on the construction of the Grand Renaissance Dam and the Nile Day celebration. This year, Nile Day is celebrated in Addis. Can you tell us how's the atmosphere among the participants? As far as uh, I gathered from the Nile Basin initiatives, hundreds of uh, people will be here from the riparian countries and uh, from other parts of the world. Uh, during the celebration, uh, in the morning, there will be a brass band. Then there will be uh, songs by the children and different activities. And in the, af- in the afternoon, there will be uh, workshops on uh, uh, shared values and collective actions in related to the Nile River. Thanks. That was Wondwesen Michago Said, PhD student at University of Lund, reporting from Addis Ababa, where Nile Day celebrations are undergoing. Let's move from Addis to Cairo, because the focus of this episode is on Egypt. I'm very glad to be joined by Rawia Taufik. Rawia is a system professor at Cairo University and researcher at the German Development Institute in Bonn. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Emanuele, for having me. You might have recognized her voice because she was uh, in episode one and two, one of our Voices of the Nile. So, Gawia, you have been working a lot on Nile hydropolitics. Yes. And one of your recent paper deals with the, this idea, the argument of thinking in terms of sharing benefits instead of sharing simply the water. What does it exactly mean and which are uh, those benefits that can be shared? Well, basically the idea of of the benefit sharing approach is to uh, go beyond the, uh, you know, the fight or the struggle over water allocation, which is very much the case in the Nile, uh, because, uh, I mean, the basic disagreement in the Nile now is whether to stick to historical agreements that actually uh, allocated the water of the Nile to Egypt and Sudan, or whether actually to, uh, uh, whether the, the countries of the basin can transcend that to try to think about the benefits from the use of the river and to share these benefits. Um, And these benefits can be hydropower production, as in the case of the uh, dams uh, built on the Lunai now in Ethiopia, or, for instance, agriculture, uh, using the, uh, you know, the vast fertile lands of Sudan, for instance. So the basic argument is to try to um, transcend thinking about, you know, water allocations and quotas and so on, and think about how to make use of the uh, uh, water of the Nile um, in order to uh, benefit all the riparian states. 
Of course, the question is whether this is politically possible or not. I think the three countries now, the three Eastern Arab countries, are still in that in that square of speaking about you know water quotas, uh, and they did not transcend that to uh, uh, speaking about sharing benefits. They are actually now in good negotiations. They are actually negotiating both issues simultaneously, almost. I was thinking, whose benefits? Eh? Because we always tend to see um, Egypt, Ethiopia and Sudan as monolithic entity. There's only one national interest. But of course, when it comes to agriculture, (laughs) for instance, or land and and water as well, I think we should also see uh, who gets the water, who gets the land within each and every country. Yeah, of course, because uh, it's not when, when we speak about benefits and sharing of benefits, it's not only between countries, but also within countries. So uh, are we speaking about, you know, benefits that relate to political elites or benefits that actually uh, go to local communities? And this is quite evident in, in uh, uh, many examples in, in the Nile Basin. When we speak about, for instance, um, uh, investments, agricultural investments made by uh, one riparian state or made by regional international powers in uh, uh, Ethiopia or in Sudan, uh, who are actually the groups that are benefits, who, the, who are benefiting from, from these projects. Um, when we speak about dam projects, for instance, uh, they are quite problematic because um, even in examples where there have been successful, you know, sharing of benefits uh, uh, between riparian states, uh, sometimes it's problematic to share these benefits at the local levels. When we look at the Rosomo Falls, for instance, in the Nile Basin, uh, uh, in the Equatorial Lakes, again, uh, presented as a successful example at the transboundary level, but um, a, a bit problematic with many open questions on uh, issues of the rights of local communities uh, at the local level. So I think it has to, to be looked at, at at the two levels, at the two scales, transboundary scale and the and the local scale within the country. So is the idea of sharing benefits instead of simply sharing waters discussed in media debates in Egypt? It's very much affected by the official point of view. So it's still, as I I mentioned before, the media is very much reflecting uh, uh, the official point of view. And here it is still stuck in in, um, speaking about water quotas and allocation, uh, the 1959 agreement with Sudan, which uh, um, allocated the water of the Nile to both uh, downstream countries. Um, uh, there is much skepticism about, you know, uh, the idea of sharing benefits because there is a belief at both the official and the media level that we have to resolve issues, uh, um, uh, contested issues over the impacts of the GERD first, uh, issues related to the filling and operation of the dam before we move to speak about, for instance, whether Egypt can buy, you know, electricity produced by the GERD or not. Hmm. In our podcast... In research, we, we look at the interaction between researchers, journalists, and policymakers. And because we often hear that the media report should reflect data in an accurate way. So I was wondering, as an Egyptian researcher, which is your experience uh, about talking to journalists? Um, it's, it's actually very much uneven. So um, I have been in touch with, with journalists who um, have been working in, in Nile uh, politics and covering and reporting on, on the Nile for a long time. 
And we have in Egypt, you know, uh, uh, lots of good uh, journalists who are actually have been covering the negotiations very much close to both researchers and to policy circles uh, to try to give a balanced uh, reporting. So uh, my interaction with them has been quite positive. They often get in contact with me in order to comment on, uh, you know, results of, uh, you know, the failure, especially the failure of, of different uh, rounds of negotiations in the last uh, few months. Um, Sometimes it's, it's, it's problematic because uh, in some other cases you have journalists who do not have sufficient background on, on this file, on the complication that relates to the Nile issue, and then when they report for the for the first time or have a, a very wide media coverage for different issues. So here you have you know the risk of uh, uh, um, journalists actually uh, delivering some inaccurate messages or not very much checking the scientific. Uh, basis of the um, report that they are actually uh, uh, doing. So um, I would say it's, uh, it has been generally been a, a very uh, positive experience. Uh, but sometimes I think you need to have a, a capacity building for, for some journalists in order to make the link more clear between researchers on the one hand and journalists on the other hand. Of course, journalists and researchers are only two sides of this uh, triangle. The, the third one are the policymakers, politicians. So, and again, it is also often said that the political decisions, policies should be informed by scientific evidence. What's the relationship between uh, researchers and politicians when it comes to Nile hydropolitics seen from the Egyptian perspective? I, I think it's, it's kind of very complex because we, we tend to think that we have, you know, uh, a very uh, uh, neutral scientific evidence uh, that uh, politicians can actually rely on in, in, in making decisions. Uh, but there are, of course, political limitations and there are political interpretations of, of scientific evidence. So the two things are not the same. You have, you know, uh, uh, the scientific arguments and you have the political inter interpretations of, of these arguments. And and the, uh, again, the uh, clear example is uh, the whole discussion and, 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 uh, and fight actually over um, which company should actually assess the uh, implications of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. So there was uh, first a discussion of, you know, whether to have a, a Dutch or a French companies, and then uh, uh, Ethiopia uh, actually asked for um, eliminating the Dutch company and then uh, brought two French companies that... Um, it preferred to uh, um, that both of them handle the uh, all the studies on the impact of the good, but then even when these uh, two companies um, produce their inception report on how they will assess the impacts of the good, both Ethiopia and Sudan uh, were not happy with this report, which indicate that well. As I said, I mean, the two things are very different. You have the scientific basis and arguments, but then you have political positions, which are actually produced by centuries and decades of, you know, interactions at the political and uh, at, at different levels that will actually shape the country's interpretation of these scientific facts. So I think it's a kind of a two-way relationship, really. Um, uh, the scientists have to actually kind of uh, try to uh, familiarize themselves with the political limitations. Uh, they cannot actually kind of isolate themselves from the political discussions. And, and on the other hand, I think uh, um, um, politicians have to make use of these scientific arguments in order to present to the public and to rationalize the decisions to the public. Thank you. And as um, 
as a political scientist, so as a scientist who's studying politics, eh, and I'm also, I'm myself a, <laughs> a political scientist, I was thinking, that's fascinating because you're both, you can be both part of the process that you mm -hmm. want to study, but you also sometimes try to take some, some distance. And when, when it comes about Nile issues, maybe in science, people think more of hydrologists, engineers. Mm -hmm. So how do you position yourself in, when you study or you try to intervene in this field? Well, it's becoming, uh, interestingly, a very multidisciplinary, of course, uh, field. Uh, so um, in the last few years, uh, I found myself, you know, uh, uh, that I had to, you know, read about dam engineering, uh, working on good, uh, to get the, just the basics of, you know, uh, uh, different kind of fields altogether. Uh, every field is actually very much in his in his own, uh, you know, uh, um, circle, uh, you know, trying to uh, share the results of his um, uh, research to his own uh, circle from the same field. So we need more sort of cross-disciplinary cross, uh, exchange uh, in the field. Uh, but at the same time, one uh, kind of, I feel that I have the privilege that uh, we have, I mean, political scientists have maybe uh, the most influential uh, uh, sort of edge here because it's it's about politics, right? Uh, you can, uh, I mean, hydrologists and economists can speak as much as they can about, you know, the economic rationale and the scientific rationale of all these transformations have, uh, happening in the basin. But I think historians and political scientists, they have the, uh, uh, you know, the, the edge of, of saying, well, it's... It, it, that's why actually cooperation is not happening as much as it can, because it's, it's water and water cooperation. It's, it's about politics more than just scientific facts or, uh, you know, uh, economic rationales and so on. Thank you very much, Agawa. It was very nice to talk to you. Thank you very much, Emanuele. And thanks, thanks for joining the Sources of the Night. Thank you. Taufik from Cairo University told us about the challenge of shifting from thinking in terms of sharing the water to thinking in terms of sharing the benefits of water. I found very interesting her remarks about the friction between scientific data and their political interpretation. What seems rational from an economic or ideological perspective might not always be politically feasible, at least according to the will of those in power. That's why she said that we have to look at the benefits sharing, not only at the transboundary scale, but also within countries and between different social groups. Gawia also mentioned that in her work she interacts with good Egyptian journalists reporting on the Nile in an accurate and professional way. And I'm very happy to have one of them as our second guest, Aya Aman. She works for the daily independent newspaper Al Shuruk and she also writes for other Egyptian newspapers. Welcome, Aya. Hello. You might have recognized her voice as well. She was uh, one of our voices of the Nile. And you might remember mm -hmm. that she said that the first time she heard about the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam was during the Egyptian Revolution in, in 2011. So I would like to start exactly from there. 
A lot has been written about the role of social media in the Arab Spring. So I was wondering, Aya, how did that experience change the media landscape and the way of producing and consuming information in Egypt? And what is left nowadays of that legacy? Yeah, um, actually, I see that the social media was uh, uh, was had um, an effective influence in the Egyptian public opinion in the period before the outbreak of the revolution. And I think that legacy is still exists until now. Um, for me, I see that there are many reasons for that. Uh, generally, because of the lack of confidence on the state media or the um, or even in the private media nowadays in Egypt, um, because of um, um, even the independent media at the, the period um, turned to the social media not only to publish their reports or the uh, uh, the information or the information they had, but also um, to have the information from the citizen. Um, and actually, um, for my work in the media field, I see that the media people uh, still work in order to maximize the benefit of the social media and to create a space of freedom uh, for publishing their work and escape the limitation or the media blackout which um, exists at this time in the country. Um, but actually, uh, there is still a lot of uh, challenging facing the journalist uh, using the social media, like the credibility. For me, um, to find the the um, the real sources or the uh, the sources who are engaged with the events uh, and to uh, to give the infor- to the truth or the uh, the good information for the people and to make sure that the people can uh, give you the trust uh, and uh, give you. Um, their confidence, it is still a big challenge. And um, also, um, the, uh, the social media, it doesn't out of the grip of power of the, uh, of the uh, state. Uh, some of the laws um, out from the uh, government nowadays uh, speak about the um, limitation um, uh, forces the social media and they uh, are... Um, some people arrested because of they write uh, some journalists because they write some uh, tweets or uh, status on Facebook and other uh, social media. Uh, I think that the the journalists need to uh, be sure that they are safe when they use uh, such uh, social media platforms to spread their ideas. Thank you, Aya. Your uh, remarks about social media made me thinking of a book that I just finished. It's, a, it's called The City Always Win by British-Egyptian filmmaker Omar Robert Hamilton. And it's between a novel, a diary on the days of the revolution in 2011 and its aftermath. And a lot is about social media, but a lot is also about um, female characters playing a key role in the re- revolution. So I was wondering uh, if you think that there is a specificity of being a female journalist uh, nowadays in Egypt and also a female journalist working on Nile and water issues. So I, I don't think that uh, there is a difference between the female or male journalists who are uh, uh, covering the Nile issues. Uh, even the, the female or the, or the male journalists, they have the same challenging of the covering such issues like that. But um, uh, if we speak about Egypt as an Islamic country and a uh, uh, Middle East country, 
maybe there is some troubles faced the journal, female journalists in, um, to have the freedom uh, to travel uh, around the Nile Basin uh, countries, uh, to have the access of being um, uh, to cover uh, some uh, events which is can uh, be uh, in the office for the day or two days uh, without going back to home. It's like the, um, uh, the traditional or the uh, some restrictions, uh, social restrictions. But if we speak about uh, female journalists in their field, I think it's, it's the same. Uh, actually, for me, in the first time I was... Uh, to take the permission of my family to travel around the night visiting countries, to go to Africa and so on. It might be a problem, but for me, it's not faced me a lot because I have the freedom from my family to go and uh, make everything inside or outside Egypt. But for, for others, I think that um, some of my colleagues told me that their families restrict them or don't give them the permission to travel alone and uh, um, to be uh, in other countries. You you mentioned your first time your, uh, that you were reporting on on the Nile that you had to travel abroad. So when did you start uh, reporting and focusing on the Nile and why that specific? Yeah, actually, in, in uh, it was in twenty uh, in two thousand nine uh, when I started my career in in the journalism. Uh, and the first steps of my career, I was searching about the most challenging issues facing Egypt and uh, for the development. Um, uh, and actually, I wrote about the climate change, slums, poverty, and the food and water security. So w when I start to work about the or search about the water security. I found that this file, it's being, it's actually it's attracted me because it's, it's have a lot of uh, aspects included in the same file. You can, it's uh, related to the political issues and the economic and the security sometimes and the, um, social, cultural. So I, I found there is a, very, a lot of diversity in that uh, file. And uh, I was uh, very lucky. Uh, my editor-in-chief this time encouraged me a lot to, to do more research, to be more specifically covering these issues. Uh, we've heard from Rawia Taufik that the Nile is framed in Egypt as an issue of national security rather than, for instance, sustainable development. And she told us that it's very difficult to shift to different frames, like, for instance, sharing benefits instead of sharing waters. So do you think that the media should actively promote such a shift? And how much do you think that the media can influence the, the frames? Yeah, actually, I totally agree with Dr. Rawia about the... Uh the uh, the shifting of the the uh, Nile issues or the water issues and framed it to, to of the national security. So for me, when I uh, when I sometimes I I, I ask uh, an official source and ask him what is happening in in such a, an event belong to the Nile negotiation and he said this file is classified and you don't have the uh, um, you don't have to ask about what. What has happened? Actually, for the, the, the media rule on, on shifting the frames, I see if there are an independent and responsible media, they can uh, play this role. But if we need to answer about this question, we have to know how the media tackles the Nile issues in Egypt. 
Um, actually, uh, to be honest, uh, I, I think that the, the Nile issues, it's, it's very far uh, from the uh, media agenda in Egypt. Even it is a very important issue for the Egyptian security and for the Egyptian national security and uh, for the daily life for many, many Egyptians in Egypt and how is the Nile very important to them. But the Nile issues is very far from the uh, media agenda. And talking about interest uh, by journalists and media outlets, um, I was wondering, media and journalists are increasingly targeted by institutions like, for instance, the Nile Basin Initiative to get trained on Nile-related issues. And you attended also uh, several of those trainings with journalists coming from different Nile countries. So how was that experience? And what would you like to see next? Um, actually, uh, um, my experience is, is very... Um, uh is very good and for sure this events create a good platform and uh, for the dialogue and to enc encourage the media uh, the, the journalists uh, to um, to speak to know what is the other perspective to uh, and to think in the issues uh, from the uh, regional perspective not from the national perspective uh, so um, I think it's it's very important but uh, the thing is that I, I need to to uh, insist that there is not a continuously for this event. I think that uh, there is a missing um, uh, step on that because uh, when the event or when the training ends, uh, everyone going to him, his country, and um, so sometimes uh, there is a still uh, connection by the groups or like the social media groups or like Facebook groups and WhatsApp groups, but. Um, we need to make such a project that can connect the people to still work together. And I think that uh, the, the more important thing is not only focus on the ordinary uh, journalists who are engaged with the night issues. So I think uh, we need to target the chief editors and the people who are on the, um, on the um, agenda or, or the people who are setting the agenda themselves, like the chief editors, like the, um, uh, the main uh, public figures in the, in the media inside the countries. So um, I think that it's, it's being very important to focus on the people who put the agenda, uh, not only the journalists, and make such a, a platform for dialogue, like forums or everything. It's not like being a training, but it can be like a forums or dialogue uh, to give more engagement for the, uh, the, those people in the, in the Nile issues. Thank you very much, uh, Aya, for your suggestion. And as you said, establishing uh, such a kind of platform and uh, facilitating connection is exactly one of the objectives of our project on open water diplomacy. So thank you very much for your suggestions. Good luck for your endeavors and your job. I strongly recommend and invite all our listeners to, to follow Aya and her reports for really accurate information on our issues from Egypt. So thanks again for being with us, Aya. Yeah, you are welcome. Thank you a lot. Thank, thank you. Thank you. journalist nowadays in Egypt and reporting on sensitive issues like the Nile is not an easy job. 
And that's why I admire Aya and I think we should support the journalists that strive to bring independent and accurate information on the Nile and water issues. And I think that Aya gave a very interesting suggestion. We need to work not only with the journalists who are already into Nile issues, but also we have to reach key persons like editors-in-chief that run the newspapers and decide about the importance of the news. It's a good tip for our project. This podcast is brought to you by the project Open Water Diplomacy, Media, Science and Transboundary Cooperation in the Nile Basin, funded by the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The music you listen to is by The Nile Project, a collective of musicians from different Nile countries performing together to approach transboundary cooperation in a creative and innovative way. Thanks, Guy, for the music and for your inspiring work. And a big thank, as usual, to Emily Baust, who edited this episode. I am Emanuele Fantini and we have been searching for the sources of the Nile.